now you have, you know, folks coming out saying, well, you know, look at the COVID rates within this one particular community. They're completely different than X community. It's like, mm-hmm. well, no, duh, of course, because they're completely different. So mm-hmm. now, you know, the, these public health policies are not accurately targeting people because for so long, everybody's had this perspective that, oh, the Latino community, everybody's one in the same. They all speak Spanish. Everybody loves beans. And you know, <laughs> they all go to the same kind of churches. So obviously they're the same. It's like, guys, that's incredibly insulting, reductive, and borderline racist. Welcome to the Minority Leaders, a podcast about women of color change makers in Washington, D.C. This is your host, Algene Sajiri, founder and CEO of Catalyst Global Strategies. This is Hispanic Heritage Month, and I am delighted to have a dynamic and brilliant Latina on the show today. And in keeping with our aim of highlighting the work of women of color change makers from across all of the political spectrum. Today's guest is from the Heritage Foundation, a think tank that formulates and promotes conservative public policies. She is a senior policy analyst for Latin America and the Western Hemisphere at Heritage and specializes in defense and civil military issues. Her analysis and opinions on Latin America affairs have been published and cited in The Atlantic, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. And if that weren't enough, (laughs) she is also a sought-after commentator on media outlets like Fox News, MSNBC, and Al Jazeera. Her name is the Anna Rosa Quintana. Welcome to the Minority Leaders, Anna. Thanks for having me, and thanks for not butchering my last name. (laughs) I worked really hard on it. (laughs) I'm really, really excited to have you here today. So... (laughs) You know, let's get into it. I want to um, let you know that, like, I remember when we first met, right? It was about a year and a half, maybe almost two years ago, when I was still in the Senate and my State Department fellow at the time, Daniel Freeman, thank you, Daniel, told me that I had to attend a Heritage Lunch briefing by, quote, unquote, one of the most respected and interesting women working on Latin America today. And Daniel was really very keen on introducing us because we're, you know, both women of color working on Latin America issues and some military issues and rule of law. And, you know, he knew that we would kind of gel because you are very, very passionate about these issues impacting the region and so am I. And so after the briefing, I just remember (laughs) you were so amazing. I remember thinking like, you're just such a breath of fresh air because you were like not afraid to be super frank and just totally out there about your observations. And I just, you're smart, you're brilliant, you're funny, and you're really real. And I really appreciated that. That gave me a lot of respect for you right off the bat. That's a very kind way of like saying that I have like verbal diarrhea. Like like it's a really bad problem. Like I just like, I don't know. I just like, I just feel like we just all need to live a life, just like say what's on your mind, right? No, Daniel honestly is the best. I think I'm like a really big believer like in bipartisanship and like everybody lives like work across the party lines and like work together and figure out what we can, you know, accomplish on issues that we like all care about. Absolutely. And I'm really so thankful um, that to Daniel for sort of making me get out of the office. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit more 
um, Anna, about what you do at Heritage. We talked a little bit about the briefing you, you gave to uh, Senate staffers or congressional staffers, but what else do you do? What are the most pressing issues facing Latin America today? And, you know, which countries should we be paying more attention to in the region? Sure. So at Heritage, I lead all of our work um, on uh, U.S. policy towards Latin America. So I've been at Heritage for about seven years now, and that essentially means that all of the publications that Heritage puts out, I have to clear. I essentially lead all of our research work uh, on the region, so everything on like Colombia, Venezuela, Northern Triangle, Central America, Cuba, you know, Mexico, whatever. Um, I also work on our index of economic freedom. We've been publishing that for about like 26 years now. So it's, you know, it's like we assess every country around the world on their relative levels of economic freedom, the rule of law procedures, judicial effectiveness, uh, monetary freedoms, you know, kind of like that whole gamut. Um, Yeah, I, you know, like you mentioned, I kind of work with our, you know, congressional partners or executive relation partners. We also work with, uh, you know, uh, countries abroad as well, right? Like developing relationships with them to see kind of, you know, what's going on in the regions abroad and also with the private sectors abroad. Full awareness, we do not accept any U.S. government money or any foreign government money at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there is, you know, a conception sometimes that folks are like, well, you know, the Heritage Foundation takes foreign government money and does X, Y, and Z. We don't at all. I I mean, we just, we we do a lot. We kind of try to just promote what are the best uh, policies for for Latin America just to advance uh, U.S. interests in the region. And I think one of the best things about working on Latin America is that it's one of the regions where there's a lot of bipartisanship there, right? There's a lot of areas where you can, I have so many friends and I think a lot of my colleagues really find it. They're like, well, you know, Anna, can you introduce me to somebody in like Senator Menendez's office or this or that office? Just because we have these like longstanding relationships just because there is so much overlap there. My boss at the time was the uh, ranking member of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee. And so we worked a lot on that region and we really depended on and really sought after the heritage analysis and, you know, your research. So, you know, it is definitely bipartisan in that respect. I know, though, it is a conservative leaning um, uh, think tank, but, you know, in that respect, it's really good to hear the research is, is, it's, it's, it's good for everyone. Everyone can use it. And, you know, you have to work across the aisle completely on issues that you can find common ground on. So, I mean, it's, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. You being someone who has worked intensely on Latin America region and also just on, you know, Latin, Latin the the Latino community in the United States. So what are you, in your opinion, the like sort of biggest challenges facing the Latino community and in the United States? You know, I I think, and this kind of like is going to like, maybe, I don't know, I think this kind of like this, this perspective maybe kind of might rub some people the wrong way. It's do it girl. I know. Right. It's not afraid. Like, we are referred to as the Latino community. Like, mm-hmm. where I don't know, somewhere along the lines, like somebody decided, like, let's just lump all these people together in this collective bucket. But like, if you were to go to, if you were to go to like the Western Hemisphere to like various countries, and you were to ask somebody from Peru, and then go to El Salvador, and then say, hey, do you can you can you imagine that when you get to America, you know, three months into you being into America in America politicians are going to start thinking of all of you as 
the Latino community. You were going to lose your country of origin status. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you were going to be thought of as just one collective group. They, they would look at you like, one, you're absolutely insane. And two, I also, th I mean, aside from like that just being insane, like from the, from the perspective of like somebody from the region, they're going to be like, no, that's nuts. Two, I think on the other side, I think it's a little bit kind of reductive and just kind of like insulting and being like, well, you know, like I'm Cuban American, like that's just who I am. Like that's my, those are my people, right? Like that's mm -hmm. just from. It's like, why do I have to lose my country of origin kind of perspective or kind of like my ethnicity just because like somebody or like this government, whatever, or, you know, political movement wants to lump us all together into one person. Sure. Yeah. You know, at some point, like this was done during like the 19, late 1970s, whatever, 1980s to kind of create this like one census category and, and look what it's done. Cause like before we were all, you know, country of origin and one perspective, and then everybody decided their race. Right. Now, lost our race you know like the afro-cubans are no longer afro-cubans you've lost that everybody's just lost who they who they've are just to be like one pan-ethnic category um I, I don't know i i think that's that's a pretty like significant challenge and then it kind of just boils down from there because the problems within the mexican-american community are completely different than the problems of the cuban-american community versus the salvadoran american community and whatever and it gets diluted from that mm -hmm. completely diluted and now you have you know, folks coming out saying, well, you know, look at the COVID rates within this one particular community. They're completely different than X community. It's like, mm -hmm. well, no, duh, of course, because they're completely different. So mm -hmm. now, you know, the, these public health policies are not accurately targeting people because for so long, everybody's had this perspective that, oh, the Latino community, everybody's one and the same. They all speak Spanish. Everybody loves beans and you know, <laughs> they all go to the same kind of churches. So obviously they're the same. It's like, guys, that's incredibly insulting, reductive and borderline racist. <laughs> right, yeah, no, I totally get it. Look, I'm, I was born in Liberia, West Africa, and yeah. right, I can totally identify, right? Because I was, even though I came here at three and I, um, I'm certainly American, I don't have the same cultural perspective as an African-American, mm -hmm. right? Um, and also I am not the same as, you know, a Nigerian or a, you know, Ethiopian, totally different cultures. Yeah. Like, I, like, so I get it. Like we are all lumped in together, you know, those Africans, you know, immigrants, they're all just like one big bucket. And it's like, no, honey. Ugh. Yeah, I get it. I totally understand what you're saying. You There you go. You absolutely get it. Like, yeah, like Cuban people from like Cuba, like our hair is completely different than like somebody from Mexico. Like somebody once came up to me and they're like, oh, do you guys celebrate Dia de los Muertos? And I'm like, that's a holiday from Mexico. Yeah, like, yeah. Are, are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what are we doing here like let's be country specific so you can actually learn about people and then when people get to america it's because they want to become american citizens assimilate to like the american patriotic culture but obviously keep their own home country traditions like the foods they eat and things like that yes but like let's come on yeah, no, I totally get it. And you, you're Cuban American, as you mentioned, and you yeah. grew up in Florida, though, like a big Miami. swings. Yes, Miami. Not just Florida, like the best part of Florida. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the best part of Florida, Miami. Um, a swing state, right, that has had a very large influence on the outcome of U.S. presidential elections. And so I'm just wondering what you, your thoughts are on the media coverage of 
the Cuban American vote um, in particular, or you know, just how people kind of group Cuban Americans even together, and they talk about like this generational split between the conservative versus liberal Cuban Americans and whatever. So, what do you think about that? I mean, look, hearing the media talk about Cuban Americans, it's like imagine you're watching like a 1950s or like 1960s like national geographic show and you're like hearing you're hearing like some like british narrator discover this like little indigenous tribe in the middle of nowhere amazons and they're like oh my god look at these people they actually with forks and oh my god look at the it's like you're like dude what is wrong with you like we're, we're good. Like we're, we're, we're fine. All right. They really talk about us. Like we're these like aboriginal, like anomalies. And it's like, Oh my, like, this is so racist. Like I put like this, I, I, I wrote this article a few weeks ago on just how some journalists and maybe it's unintentional. Maybe it's not. I, I don't like to ascribe any sort of like intentionality to people unless I actually really know them. Yeah. The way that they actually describe Cuban Americans and talk about them in a way that they would never talk about any other ethnic group. Because if they ever talked about any other ethnic group that way, there would literally be like massive protests on the streets, but that's just been their consistent way of talking about us, right? And and, and so I, I think, you know, kind of just it's like a roundabout way of saying like like the Cuban American, I think we've we've always been talked about in a way as though we are elitist as right. though we are all white, mm-hmm. um, as though we are all wealthy and everybody came to this country right after Fidel fled. I mean, right after Fidel took over and they brought their millions and that's why everybody's disgruntled against communism and that's it. Mm. Um, that could not be further from the truth. Like my family's experience, which is a combination, which is like like millions of others or hundreds of thousands of others, it's my family's Afro-Cuban. I'm the palest person in my family, right? Like, trust me, you want to come join me when I have to relax my hair and use like three bottles of conditioner to detangle this monstrosity? <laughs> join me, okay? You will see that there's no whiteness in my bloodline. And, and there's like, and, and then we grew up incredibly poor in a very poor part of Miami. Like nobody was wealthy in my family. They came over during the Maria boat lifts. It was seven of them living in a one bedroom house mm-hmm. and they grew up with absolutely nothing. And that was the experience of a lot of people. And that continues to be the experience of a lot of people, but instead we're continuously bashed as these like wealthy elitist people. And And so I I think, but the reason why I think there tends to be more people in the Cuban American community voting center right or with center right political perspectives is there, we're largely unwilling to give up our freedoms for just a little bit of like government protection or just a bit of protection just in any way, right? This idea of like, oh, the government's going to come in and help you or the government's going to give you X, Y, and Z. Or this idea of like groupthink, like, oh, we should all just collectively believe a certain way or be coerced to believe mm. a certain way or be shamed into believing a certain way, which is this growing trend now, right? Mm. You either believe a certain way or you're a horrible person, or you're either, we're going to shame you into believing a certain way or you're a horrible person. And I think that's kind of like the trend that we're seeing now in Florida, which everybody's shocked to say like, oh, Trump, despite his immigration policies, look at where the vote is going in Florida, because, you know, people don't care about the fact that he's, or largely a lot of people in Florida don't care about the fact that he's politically incorrect. They just care about the policies that are being implemented. Mm-hmm. And you think that they, and I mean, they agree with the immigration policies 
that he's putting forth, even though, you know, there's a large immigrant population. So even people who are second, third generation um, immigrants um, or first generation immigrants, they support the policies. So if there, there was this uh, poll that came out, uh, this, the, these poll and these focus groups that came out, and there were some progressive pollsters that actually conducted the poll, and it was published in the New York Times. And I think that the, even the, the way that the progressive pollsters uh, discussed it, they, they were even a little shocked, right? So like, well, you know, we included some terms that are typical Republican dog whistle terms, which uh, we want to keep our neighborhood safe of gangs. We want to prevent illegal immigration. And it was a plural, it was a majority of Mexican Americans and a majority of people of Central American origin and also Cuban Americans who agreed with that sentiment, mm. right? So it wasn't just the Cuban Americans who supported that perspective. It was also people from that other country of origin background as well. Mm. And I think there's this reflexive idea sometimes that people are like, well, of course, Mexican Americans would naturally not support President Trump's immigration policies. But if you look at Mexican Americans and Mexicans in Mexico, don't support what gangs are doing down there. Don't support mm-hmm. what criminals are doing, right? I think everybody just wants a rule of law based policy, mm-hmm. rule of law, rule of law based policies. And maybe they don't necessarily agree with Trump's rhetoric. And maybe they don't necessarily agree with some of the unintended consequences that are coming as a result of it. Mm-hmm. But do people agree with the idea of do we need to keep drugs and other people who are breaking laws to come, come coming into our country. I mean, I, I think th- there's a shocking result of how many people actually do support that. And I think mm. this again comes again, going back to the idea of the Latino community is monolithic and we all have this singular right. idea, you know, we all have this kind of like the singular perspective. We, we don't. And so, I mean, I'm going to just ask one more question on this because this is fascinating to me. So, you know, as you know, this is an issue I'm very passionate about. And so you're saying it's possible to be supportive of the policy, but, you know, one of the, I guess you could characterize this as the unintended consequences, but what's going on with the detention centers and the separation of kids from their, their moms. And I mean, very young kids being behind bars. I think like, obviously I don't think people support that, right? Like nobody can support that. So how do they sort of compartmentalize that? And what is, what is the thought about how to fix that aspect of it? Even if, you know, support the keeping up, of course, everyone supports keeping up the drug dealers and the, you know, all of that, but you know, the vast majority or many of the people coming over, I can't, and I don't know the numbers specifically right now, but a lot of people coming over are our families, um, women and children and, 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 you know, young men probably just wanting to work and escape the situation going on there. And I, I think, you know, as you working on Latin America, you know, I think there should be more done um, and more support for foreign assistance, assistance that works to prevent people from coming over to give, you know, livelihoods and support, mm-hmm. you know, them being able to to stay in their communities um, and make them safe and and have livelihoods rather than pushing them you know them feeling like they have nothing nothing more to risk than their own lives when they you know travel for days upon days and weeks through very dangerous territory to get to this country just to try to make their a, a better lives for themselves. I'm just curious what are your thoughts on that. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, no. So actually, let me answer the second one and let me go to the first one. So like on the yeah. second part in terms of the kind of like the, the, the policy solutions to this is like, you know, kind of like how do we help support regional countries 
and regional governments and kind of like on the civil society level to 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 find the solutions to to kind of prevent the migration. Mm -hmm. How do we solve the push factors, right? I think one mm -hmm. thing we have to keep in mind is these are very recent and kind of like post-Civil War nations, right? These are very nascent democracies. Many of these countries, their democracies are much younger than, than you and I, right? Mm -hmm. Many much younger than kind of like, or even our interns. These mm -hmm. uh, countries just became democracies like in the early nineties, they just mm -hmm. Civil War and the parties that are governing these countries were literally fighting each other as civil war, as, as a kind of like a civil war, like armies or civil war combatants rather just again, just three decades ago. Right. And so how do you go from fighting to then governing and kind of like effectively governing and checking and balancing each, each other? That's a huge problem. Two, mm -hmm. They're, they're within these governments, and I'm I'm very comfortable with saying this because I've said this to their governments themselves. There is very little political will, I think, in many of these, particularly in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, to actually do something about this. There there is no political will, right? Frankly, if you look at the number in terms of remittances to percentage of GDP, they rely mm -hmm. heavily on remittances to to fund their GDP. In Honduras, it's twenty percent of GDP is funded by remittances, right? In Guatemala, mm -hmm. it's 12%. You're mm -hmm. not gonna want to address that. And then if you balance that out, if you correlate that as well to how much these countries spend on social services, yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, right? and, and they're just consistently relying upon the United States because they actually know that we're just going to continue providing foreign assistance for, you know, whatever civil society, basket weaving, women's empowerment, something, whatever program. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's a drop in the bucket. We're doing nothing. Mm -hmm. We're not impacting much on the ground where you provide support for reintegration centers to help returning migrants to make sure they don't go back. But what are we doing in terms of long term? I think what we need to be doing in terms of long term is how do we help these governments fix their economic institutions and fix their legal and regulatory systems to actually promote long-term economic investment because working mm -hmm. with society and something, whatever parties, things like that on the ground. Yeah, sure. <laughs> one election, maybe two elections, but where's the long-term economic development support. Right. So then, and then kind of on the first question is do, do, how do, you know, Latin, Latin Americans or, you know, kind of Americans of Latino descent square their support with kind of the unintended consequences of Trump's immigration policies. I think nobody was prepared, um, particularly our, our, nobody was prepared, particularly kind of like our border patrol officials for the surge that happened on our border because our border detention facilities were not designed to be long-term holding facilities. You know, like mm -hmm. I've been to many of these facilities and you look at them and these are literally designed to be, you hold, you move, you hold, temporary holding and then move on, right? I can't speak of the child separation policy because frankly that I don't know enough of, but in terms of where migrants are temporarily kept and then kind of like where, where they're transferred to. I, I think if you look at in terms of like how people's, people's views on it and then kind of the, the, the outcry against it, I think there's far more poli one political and civil society kind of noise on this because if you look more kind of like at the grassroots level and then if you look at also polling within Mexico, polling in Mexico, over 60% of Mexicans are completely against Central American migration, literally 60% of Mexicans, which is why Mexico signed the migration, uh, the uh, MPP agreement, MPP accords. I'm literally blanking on the other P in this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, do we need to find more humanitarian ways of kind of protecting people's rights and kind of in this process? I, I, I think so, absolutely. Do we need to do this in a way that 
impedes and creates an additional burden and more burdensome and costly layers on kind of our border and our and kind of like our border um, our border operations. I think there needs to be a balance here as well because if you look at kind of how we operate in comparison to other countries. I mean, I think the United States is exceptionally generous and is exceptionally considerate. Look at how Guatemala operates, right? Guatemala has eight asylum officers in the entire country, right? Mm. Look how Mexico operates. Mexico's asylum budget is probably the budget for what our asylum officers spend on pens. <laughs> and, and so I think, you know, at times, I think the United States sometimes is a bit unfairly criticized when, when there are not comparisons made to other countries. Yeah, I, I agree. We're judged in a different way um, because, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, I think, there is this perspective that, you know, the United States should be sort of the gold standard and the leader and et cetera. And I think that, um, though, but there needs to be more to push these countries. I mean, <laughs> I could talk all day about Honduras and Juan Orlando. Absolutely. Oh my God. And the governance issues and all the things. I mean, I could talk all day and tell you that nothing really is going to truly change in Honduras until you get a leader that's really committed to change. And I, I, I 100% wholeheartedly agree with you on yeah. that. I and testified then, last year in front of McGovern in front of, on, on, that, on that same issue. I completely agree with you on that. I mean, thank you for allowing me, you know, to sort of indulge in that policy piece and yeah. like really ask those critical questions because I think, you know, and I, it, it, I, I did kind of put you on the spot there, so I appreciate no, you that's allowing totally me. To, fine. <laughs> you, know, I know, you know, I know it's like you must be presented with this, like, okay, you're the conservative Latina, you know. <laughs> and oh, I mean, I like, can probably fun. is it like is it kind of tough though to be that you know person in the room that um, I mean, there's there's quite a few conservative like latinas but uh and latinos but um i know that i have like for instance many friends who are african-american conservatives and Mm -hmm. and they feel like sometimes judged by their own community because of their views and you know oftentimes you know at you know dinner parties or whatever put on the spot (laughs) for being the the black republican you know do you find that 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 happens to you? I mean, what's what's it like being a conservative Latina in foreign policy and national security field? I, I mean, I, I it's I don't I don't think of it as an issue, right? Like mm-hmm. I think it just it, it is what it is, and I have my beliefs and I stick to my beliefs, and I think it's it's not it's not a problem. I think the only time it ever becomes a problem, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I think it's becoming a bit there's a bit more of like a lack of civility over this over these last, I would say last like two years just where people just like shut you down and they're like, oh, well, you work at the Heritage Foundation, so you must be racist. Well, Mm. well, you are conservative, so you just must be a bigot. And it's kind of like, well, you know, well, you're a bit of an asshole. And it's like, (laughs) you have no idea who I am. You have no idea what I think. You literally have no idea what my life experiences have been. And you just completely are invalidating me because of these little selected cherry picked assumptions. And I think that's where the problem is, right? Like I have literally no problem with defending my beliefs, defending my perspectives, and also hearing from people who disagree with me. Like I have so many friends who disagree with me and I love that I think that makes our lives richer and it makes our lives better um I just I think that it's kind of like this like lack of people who are now not wanting to hear like or respect the plurality of opinion like that's this growing movement like that's just concerning Mm -hmm. yeah it's absolutely concerning and I think it's you're right I mean I think I've seen it on both sides and it's it's really a it's not a great thing and it's really actually scary because I mean I just saw a huge change in the discourse over the last 
honestly, it started in a right around the time of the ACA, like right around 2010, where this mm-hmm. things got super nasty. You know, like the Tea Party people and the, and the you know, be super progressive folk, like all, there's no middle anymore. There's no talking to each other. Like those two wings kind of, I think, polarized and pushed everyone to the left or the right, to the extremes, right? And like, mm-hmm. you've seen a lot of the people who were sort of in the middle get voted out on both sides. It really scares me about the future of our democracy, honestly, if we can't get to a better place where we can 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 get together and and talk about things and disagree without like tearing each other apart, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I com- I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I think it's, I, I'm not so, I, I think I'm a, not so much concerned or maybe a little less concerned about the fact that like, it's okay, we can completely disagree and have com- very divergent policy perspectives or kind of divergent like philosophical perspectives. But I think if we cannot have a place where like we can value debate, right? Or we yeah. can't value the idea of like civility and value um, just plurality of opinions because it's like, hey, it's perfectly fine that you completely have a different perspective on healthcare than me or a different perspective on, I don't know, like, you know, gender ideology, whatever, who cares? But the fact that we can't sit down and have a conversation and then have a a perspective on how to resolve this and rather one's perspective is I'm going to coerce and shame you into adopting my agenda and policy or like violently coerce you. That is the scary thing. And that's where I see this like growing movement that you're just like, hold on. Yeah. This is like, this is just way too much right now. I, I, I agree, but I do think that the fact that there are very few moderate voices at the table right now well, is, is why this discourse has gotten, because everybody's pandering to like the basis of the base, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so, and so it just starts this discourse of dis, of disdain. Like, so nobody feels like they can talk to each other and even talking to each other is a bad thing. You know, like it's not respected. Anyway, so I, I just, I think it's really troubling trend and I agree with you 100% on that. So I want to just pivot a little bit to your I guess journey, right? We've talked a lot about the policy. You are obviously a fierce 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 opinionated and I think very strong young woman or younger <laughs> younger than me woman <laughs> of color in foreign policy and you know a lot this is all skincare like oh yeah. you look good girl you know it doesn't crack baby life. it does not yeah <laughs> yes 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 dr brandt too okay you know a lot of our listeners are, are very you know young women of color like jade vasquez our our uh, producer of the podcast who you know is just getting out of grad school and, you know, wants to feel sort of motivated. It's a very tough field to get into for anybody, for anybody (laughs) to get into. It's a very tough field. And I I think that, you know, our goal and my goal in this, this show is to sort of encourage the next generation of women of color Mm -hmm. leaders in this field. So I, I want to get your thoughts on how can people like you who are more seasoned support other younger women? Sure breaking into the field what do you think needs to happen um what what do you think is important um what's the value of mentorship what opportunities have you benefited from throughout your career that brought you to this place um if if at all right um as far as mentorship opportunities and you know what advice would you give to to young women coming into this space to start off i would say 
One thing I've learned is, um, and kind of like how I've helped out younger girls and to break into this space is there's a significant deficiency of like women in national security. I mean, like this is something, you know, you've obviously seen this, right? There's like a significant Mm -hmm. deficiency. Like there are like barely any women. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, I don't think it's necessarily a product anymore of just like, you know, the white old men, like trying to keep women out. But I just think it's, you know, I think just some women just don't necessarily like study national security issues, like when they're in school. And then they just think like, this is like an unattainable thing for them. They just, some women just like aren't forward leading. They're just like, well, I just, I'm, I, I'm, you know, don't want to bother this person at this, you know, happy hour. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I, I think what people like us need to do more of is just be like, girl, shut up that person who cares about them who cares if they were an assistant secretary or whatever that's probably a person just donated whatever to get that position go up walk up talk to them get their card meet them for coffee and get their advice i think we need to like encourage these girls to be like that to not be scared and to not like put these people on like such uh to put these like senior officials on such like high pedestals and to be so afraid of them right mm-hmm. I think too often like young girls just get very scared and just kind of too intimidated yeah um I, I also think we also need to kind of start a bit earlier when it comes to mentorship and start mentoring our interns who like come to us when they're already in college you know I, one thing I love about heritage is our internship program we get about 60 some odd interns a year Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've been trying, I've, I've tried to be a bit kind of like proactive in um, in like mentoring, like the interns who I think are like fantastic and not just like my own interns, but also like other interns who I've seen that I'm like, Hey, this person has come to me out of nowhere. They mm-hmm. read something that I wrote, they like something that I've done, whatever. Let me just, you know, and they want to cultivate a relationship with me and they've actually put in time and effort. Let me stay in contact with them. And to this day, I have about three, four former interns mm-hmm. who I just, I absolutely love, right? One who now works for Senator Cruz. Mm-hmm. I have three who are like on, you know, the Trump campaign, like the 2020 Trump campaign, which whatever, sorry if, you know, some guys, some of you guys don't agree with it, but it's like, it's okay. It's like, <laughs> it's like, fantastic and amazing work. And like, these were like, you know, my little kids and they were just like, you know, young, bright eyed kids in college. And like, now they're working, you know, 14, 15 hours a day, like doing something that they absolutely love and like actually being yeah. real adults. Yeah. And I don't know, I just, it's, it's such a great thing to see. And I think, you know, in terms of like the value of mentorship, it's, I, I think, especially in some, some areas and like it, particularly in DC, we see so many, and I think, I don't know if this was an experience for you. We see so many of these kids, particularly kids who come on the Hill, many of the internships on the Hill are probably unpaid, meaning that you have to come from like significant wealth or significant mm-hmm. privilege to be able to do these sorts of internships. And heritage internships are paid, but I still think you have to sometimes come from like a particular background in order to either know of these things or to be aware of these sorts of internships and kind of be aware of opportunities afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to be very kind of like proactive with like my alma mater, Florida International University, which the majority of kids who go there are kids who, you know, had their school lunch paid for, come from single parent Mm -hmm. households or first generation American citizens, whatever. And I really try to be very like proactive with them and be like, guys, uh, these are the opportunities that you're probably not aware of. Let's try to, you know, 
these are things you probably didn't know existed. There's a bright, shiny world out here. Let's come on, let's explore it. And I go down to Miami and I talk with them often, like instead of just like speaking with them from DC. And, and I think, you know, this is how we can help change lives, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about like telling people, oh, you're a victim because you are Latino and life is going to suck for you because there's so many challenges. It's about like, look, yeah, you know, sometimes things do suck, but like you can, you're more than your circumstances. Like let's find ways of overcoming this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where like, there's a lot of value in, in mentorship and kind of like what advice I don't know what have I benefited from mentorship. Honestly, I think I've had some fantastic mentors and the majority of them have been my bosses at Heritage. They've all been military leaders and Mm. have all former leaders in the military. And they've all, in the military, it's like you train the next generation to take over your job. That's always Mm. been their perspective. It's never been, they've never felt like, I honestly think sometimes some women uh, maybe feel challenged by others. And I think they don't necessarily want to train they're somebody who's younger than them. I think rarely are you able to find a woman who's like, I love you. I want to train you. Let me like build you up. Um, Cause I've had some, you know, not so great leaders in the past. Mm-hmm. My bosses now are just incredibly empowering. And they're like, I want to train you to take over from me when I retire, because this is kind of the way it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I, and that's, I think, you know, that's, I think the approach I've taken with, with mentorship. Looking over the time since with all your experiences, if you could talk to your 22 year old, (laughs) right. And say, okay, with all the lessons and experiences you've accumulated over the years, what would you say to your younger self? Right? Like what's the one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? The people in DC, a lot of the people who you see in DC that are successful are very good self promoters and are not necessarily there because of merit. I want to clap. Yes, girl. Yes. Yeah. Um, so do yes. not be intimidated. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just don't be intimidated. I used to be very intimidated by things. And now I'm just like, oh my God, you're just like really good at like adjectives and like just really good at like saying things, but not really saying much. Mm-hmm. Girl, I, I cannot agree with you more. That was the one thing I had to, oh my gosh, I can't even, I don't even know where to start with that. Tell me that's I not totally true. cannot. Tell me that's not true. It is so true. It's so true. Just, like speaking tweets, and you're like, but it's but you didn't so say anything. <laughs> it's so true. So many of the really um super successful people, a lot of the people who are on TV, they're just really good at promoting themselves. Mm-hmm. They weren't the people who were like you and me, like doing the policy, doing the research, like overseeing the stuff. But they're the political people who are like the good talking. Yeah, like I earn these bags under my eyes. Okay. Oh yes. We earn them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Anna. It's been an honor and just a treat. You've been you're so delightful. I really like how you speak your mind and you're just like unapologetically just badass. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. And you're also super brilliant. And I just want to thank you. I can't thank you enough for joining us today you are far too sweet and i'm so glad you are like hosting this podcast and thank you so much for having me on and like i just like this was a fit this was a great opportunity and a great conversation thank you yes it was a fantastic conversation i just want to say to our listeners we'll be back again soon with another episode of the minority leaders podcast do not forget to subscribe rate review and share this episode and with gratitude and inspiration i'm signing off Thank you, thank you.